Welcome to Ask the $50 Billion Man with high-performance executive success coach, Dan Pena. The only show where you ask and you get complete, no-holds-barred answers. You want the truth? Can you handle the truth? Ask only if you dare. Head on to www.askthe50billiondollarman.com to submit your questions. And now, your host, Dan Pena. Hi, Hi, this is Dan Pena welcoming you to 010 or number 10 podcast of Ask the $50 Billion Man. Uh, Again, we continue to get uh, uh, good questions, uh, good to great, uh, but I'd like for you to continue to give me uh, as many questions as you ask. And we're still looking for uh, the winner. Remember, there's going to be five winners, one grand winner that gets a castle seminar next year and four winners that get to spend uh, lunch and an afternoon with me either in the UK, at the castle, uh, or when I'm traveling around the world, whatever closest to you. Uh, you've got to get to me. Um, uh, uh, one other comment I want to make. Uh, again, I want to thank everybody for um, the participating in the, in the contest. And two, I want to uh, thank everybody for the uh, nice comments that we've got about the podcast. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's made me feel not, not uh, warm in the heart, but it's made me feel that it's been effective. Okay, let's get going with the questions. Um, this question is, uh, Dear Mr. Pena, I'd like to put to you a question that is both real and hypothetical. You want to enter a market valued at four, uh, in the UK at 14 billion pounds uh, in 2012, which by 2016 will be valued at 17 billion pounds. Now, I'm going to break this down as we go. Now, he's given me this information, so my answers are going to be based on the information he gives me. I, I, I don't know if it's a he or she, I didn't look. But I would want to verify the 14 billion, which is easier to verify than the 17 billion in 2016. And that's what you should be doing, so just uh, uh, pay attention to how I break it down. Average uh, EBITDA, oh yeah, uh, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization in this industry is 28%. That's pretty good. That's a pretty, pretty high margin. There are barriers to entry around the uh, legislation in the industry, but these barriers have been passed. Okay, I'd want to know what the barriers are, and he's answered, uh, a license to operate has been granted, but I still want to know what the barriers are. The bi- uh, he goes on to say the biggest barrier is funding. Well, the biggest barrier is always funding, in your mind, but in reality it's not. You require funding to start on an acquisition trail, a classic buy and build strategy. Well, it's not so classic, but uh, I understand. Even starting at the first step it will require a million pounds, <clears throat> but you only have access to 50,000 pounds. So you're 950,000 pounds short. Uh, so my question is, what are the a- exact steps you take starting today? Okay. <clears throat> I don't know if you have a dream team. Uh, I don't know if you've got a mentor. I don't know if you've got accountants and lawyers. I don't know if you're following the uh, QLA steps. Okay, so um, the um, how do you put together? Okay, how do you put together a team to support multiple acquisitions in the shortest possible time? Let's get back to the qu- uh, initial question. Um, if you don't have a dream team, if you don't have a mentor, those are your first steps. Then you use those as leverage to go get a, uh, an accounting firm uh, to do your deal on a success fee basis. And then you go and um, next you get a law firm 
to do it on a success-free basis. Okay. Don't worry about the 50,000 pounds. You'll probably eat that up in uh, initial expenses. Okay. How do you put together a team, to, again, uh, to support your acquisition in the shortest possible time with a success finance being in place? If you don't have what I just mentioned, you're not going to be able to put a team together. And it's going to take time for you to recruit a mentor. It's going to time take time for you to get uh, a chairman if he's not your chairman and it'll take uh, more time for you to get the guys and or gals that you need for your uh, board of directors which in turn you'll take time for you to get uh, your accounting firm and your law firm uh, and depending on if you need any other specialty uh, uh, professionals. Um, the question is why was the laundromat business uh, making so much money if there were no barriers to entry? Uh, it made a, a, a lot of money back in the day. I, I don't know if it still makes uh, money now because it was a time-consuming, hard business. Laundromats, you have to have somebody watching the cash, sitting there. You, have, uh, uh, you need to collect the cash. Uh, theft and a, a lot of other things are, are, are very much uh, part of the, of the model. So a lot of people didn't want to get involved in it. Uh, but the laundromats, uh, and there, are, there were one or two people that controlled most of the laundromats from uh, Maine through the Carolinas in, in the 90s and early 2000s. I'm not sure what it is anymore. Mr. Pena, you advise that it is critical to make lawyers and accountants part of the deal. Correct. It, by part of the deal, I mean part of your extended dream team, not part of the deal owning uh, shares in uh, your uh, dream. Uh, do you also imply that they will delay uh, charging you for um, the establishment of the company? Yes, I do. I just got done reading some emails before I came in here to, to, um, to film, to shoot this podcast, where I have guys in the United States and in the UK that are getting the accountants and the lawyers to delay charges and roll them into the first transaction. It, he then goes on to ask, if not... Uh, then this means your raising capital aspect should also include the financing of the startup costs. Well, it's always going to include um, the financing of the startup costs. It's going to be rolled in and you're going to pay for the uh, professionals out of the first fundraising. Uh, during the time with Great Western, up until 39, I assume my age of 39, when you retired, that you find yourself... Um, did you find yourself ending every day exhausted or was it more like a regular schedule of going to the office? Monday to Sunday, but leaving early at 8 p.m. No, I never found myself exhausted. But now that you mention it, you know, the power of the suggestion, I'm going to sit down. Um, you got it all wrong, guys. If you're exhausted from what you're doing, then you're in the wrong business. You know, I liken it to when you first meet a significant other. You want to spend every minute with them. You want to have sex six, eight times a day. You know, you have sex in the bathroom. You have sex in the kitchen. You have sex in the car. I mean, you can't, ha you can't get enough of it. Well, that's the, a similar feeling that you should have for your dream. You want to do it every minute. You know, I, I, sp I spend not every minute of, the, uh, of my waking hours at age 69, almost 70, thinking about how uh, I can get my QLA model better and make the Castle Seminar better. But I, I spend most of my waking hours. And so uh, it's, uh, it is my regular schedule, and it was my regular schedule then.
Mr. Pena. Um, some argue, and he, he names a guy named Harry Dant, who I don't know. Uh, oh, yes, I do know. He's a stock market guy. Argue that the stock market growth is fueled by just two factors. Now, this is a very popular theory. Okay, I'm not saying I'm a proponent of it, but I'm familiar with it. Two factors are A, population growth supplemented by immigration. In other words, the more population growth we have, the more people will buy stock and fuel the stock market. And B, disposable income. Uh, disposable income is, uh, is greatest. Uh, by disposable income, you realize it's the money you have left over after bills. It's another way of looking at it as free cash flow. Disposable income is greatest between 45 and 50 years of age. The presumption is the stock market will continue to rise as long as there are more people of equivalent, of equivalent disposable income entering the 45 to 50 um, segment than leaving it. Do you think there is any value to this idea? Well, I do think there's value, uh, not taking anything away from Mr. Dent, I do think there's value in the fact that the more people we have, the more potential buyers for stocks around the world. But that also means that people that have not just between 45 and 50, because if you're making $12,000 a year or $15,000 a year, you don't have any uh, disposable income. If you're making twenty-five dollars or $50,000 a year, you may not have any disposable income. What I think should be added to the Denton formula is that we ha need an expanding middle class. Right now, uh, there's a disproportionate, as uh, the pundits will tell you, of people at the top with a lot of money, like myself, uh, and uh, there's, a, uh, there's not a big uh, middle class, and there's a, a lower class, a lower income class. So as long as that disposable income range of 45 to 50 is expanding and their disposable income is expanding as a group, then that, that, that bodes well for his theory. But I think there's a lot more to um, why markets go up and down. Promise to pay later after first year after first deal. Other uh, ideas that have worked. What he's referring to is that uh, when you're incorporating your dream team and extended dream team with uh, a uh, accounting firm and a law firm, you're saying that you're going to not, not necessarily pay them later after the first year. You're paying them upon the conclusion of your first acquisition because you're rolling it in the cost of the first acquisition. That's correct, and that works. That works today as we speak, uh, and it, it worked uh, 25, 30 years ago, and it's worked a long, long time. If you use the word successfully, uh, uh, it's, it's more readily accepted by the big firms as opposed to contingent fee. Contingent fee is contingent upon whether you're going to get the deal done. Success fee, there's no doubt in your mind whether it's going to get done. It's just a matter of timing. Mr. Pena, we often discuss um, who do we want in a deal, but please give some examples of what should not who should not be in the deal, or what should not be in the deal. You mentioned business brokers at some point, but there are some others. Let's see if there's more to this question. Okay. Yeah, okay. I have not had good experience with business brokers because business brokers, um, they don't care if the deal is good, bad, or indifferent. They only get paid uh, upon uh, the sale of the transaction. The business brokers should only work for one side. They should only work for the seller. But I've been involved in deals where I found out sometimes before 
during and after the fact that they were getting trans, uh, fees from both sides of, of the deal and uh, they can't not be not conflicted. Um, other people that uh, shouldn't be in your deal are people that have uh, different agendas than you. Uh, and the reason why I love success fees so much, I've never had a deal die that I was uh, paying on a success fee basis where a lawyer or an accounting firm killed it. I have had deals die where they were getting paid by the hour and they had no incentive to get the deal done. I'm not saying that the lawyers and or the accountants did anything not professional, did anything that, uh, 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 that wasn't above board. But I do know that they have more incentive to close a deal when they're going to get paid as opposed to not close a deal uh, and still get paid. Um, I often discuss factor of acquisitions is what happens afterwards, integration or the lack thereof. You know, a majority or 90, 95% of all acquisitions fail because of um, uh, different cultures. Uh, you mentioned at some point paying bonuses to acquired employees as a way to ease the transaction before uh, doing the special, uh, especially afterwards. That's correct. I want to give them incentive to want the deal to get done and I want to give them incentive to stay, so I want to get, know, let them know that this is how we treat our employees. And so um, I, I've even given bonuses um, uh, right at the close before they've even done, done anything for me. Uh, are there other ideas related to post-closing that you find important to mention? Yeah, always do what you say you're going to do. Never bullshit them. Never um, come up with a reason uh, to uh, change your mind. And the lawyers and the accountants will often uh, give you reason. Uh, with the above in mind, how would you justify uh, to a banker uh, including bonuses to acquired employees as part of the acquisition price? I mean, oh, quite easily. We're gonna, we want to retain these employees. Uh, you can call it working capital. You can call it whatever you want but uh, we want to maintain the level of spirit of core or camaraderie of the employees that we're acquiring, and we're going to have to pay for that. Um, so you be upfront and be honest about it. I know for a fact that you have an out-of-worldly presence in the room. Thank you very much. I'll stand up for that. What are some of the things you consider, you consciously do to create this? Well, number one, I look the way I look. The other guys don't look this way. Number two, I sound the way I sound. I talk with confidence. I talk uh, in an articulate manner. Um, but remember, message, communication is message sent, message received, and me message acted upon when I want you to act upon it. That also uh, encompasses good leadership. Uh, what do you think about, uh, what do you say to yourself or hear, um, or hear said to yourself? How do you internally prepare for this? I practice. I looked at these slides before last night. I stayed up till two in the morning going over the uh, slides for uh, today's podcast shoots. Uh, and I'm a professional. And being a professional <clears throat> is acting like a professional even when you don't feel like it. I made it a, an, a, an example or analogy a podcast or two ago that the first couple of days of the August seminar, I didn't feel so well, but you couldn't tell. Uh, because as Alistair Cook, the famous BBC presenter, uh, 
said uh, being a professional is uh, acting like a professional even when you don't feel like it. So I prepare myself mentally. Uh, when I was younger, I used to slap myself in the face to get my adrenaline going. I don't have to do that anymore. I'm high on life now. Well, I was high on life then, but uh, I thought I had to slap myself in the face. <clears throat> uh, for most ideas that don't develop, the problem is a question of finance. <clears throat> I don't believe that, but I'm going to continue with the question. Uh, with this in mind, why is it then so hard to overfinance a deal? <clears throat> it's not. Um, the, uh, let me go back to the first premise. Uh, deals don't get done not because you can't find the finance. Deals don't get done because you're trying to get greedy. Deals don't get done because uh, you don't make enough financial presentations. Deals don't get done uh, because you underestimate the cost and emotional capital. Now, with that in mind, why is it then so uh, difficult uh, and or hard to overfinance a deal? Well, it's not. You can overfinance a deal. Uh, the, you can't triple it or double it, but you can uh, more or less readily put in 10, 15, 20% additional for working capital uh, and, uh, and, and paying some bonuses and some fees. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it would uh, seem like it is a natural thing to do. Yes, it is to overfinance. Give the company more working capital than it, uh, it believes it needs so they can take a few bumps and come back swinging as opposed to being knocked down for the count with the first blow. Absolutely. Plan not going according to expectations. <clears throat> I've never seen a business plan, well, I don't like business plans, as you already know, but I've never seen a business plan fail on paper. And I've also never seen a business plan that came out to show reality when you're um, uh, actually uh, in business. And like in war, the first shot that's fired, uh, business plans go to shit. When it comes to company culture, you essentially say that it is not the writing on the wall, but the behavior exhibited in the hall. Yes, amen to that. Uh, and, and part of that culture, as I, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, is that if they see you coming in at 11, 12, 1 o'clock, uh, and you expect them to be in at 7, 8, or 9 o'clock, uh, they're going to probably get not too much done uh, until you get there. Along these same lines, Patton exclaims, soldiers must look like soldiers in order to expect to act like soldiers. I agree. This is my uniform. With this in mind, <clears throat> what are the key attributes to exhibit in yourself and demand of employees and partners? On time. Early. Work late. Don't take too many breaks. Eat at your desk. Now I'm saying all these things that are politically incorrect. Uh, I expect them uh, to work until the project's done. My daughter, who just got out of graduate school at Northwestern uh, six or eight months ago, who's at her first job, I told her, I asked her how she's uh, doing. She's doing. She said, "I'm doing fine. I'm working long hours." And I said, "Did anybody tell you to work long hours?" She says, "No, but I got to get the work done." Well, most people don't think or function that way. I've also told my kids and all my mentees, if you're working for somebody else now, and if you're not working for somebody else now, be the first in and the last to leave. Um, I can think of clean and neat appearance, yes. Always respecting verbal or written agreements, yes. Penalties for tardiness and slowness, yes. 
making the work environment a purely, uh, purely for work environment, uh, being the first to show up and last to leave, exactly, he's, uh, he's on the right point, intolerance for company uh, politics, and imposing the rule of decisions should always be made based on what is best for the interests of the company. He's, he's right on point on all these things. Um, what are some others that you find are absolutely mandatory for a company that expects to grow exponentially? Heart, passion. You want the people to be on your bus, as Oprah Winfrey says. You want all the people on the bus that are thinking like you think. If they're not thinking like you think, uh, it's a recipe for disaster, or as my wife would say, it will all end in tears. Um, I, I can't emphasize enough that if you have a 30 or 35 hour a week work mentality for the people that you're uh, bringing on board, and you've got a 60, 70, or 80 hour a week mentality, it's not going to work. How do you protect your money? A lot of people talk about making money, but uh, how do you protect your money? You mentioned uh, the UK instrument of uh, irre irrevocable trust, which is not universally found an instrument. No, it's not a UK instrument. Uh, I've had the Castle on Irrevocable Trust, which is actually a US Irrevocable Trust for over, almost 30 years now. Well, that's not how I protect my money. I'm protecting that one asset uh, and the assets that are in that Irrevocable Trust. But I don't worry about inflation. I don't worry about deflation. I don't worry about paying taxes, which I do. Uh, and as uh, Bunker Hunt, my old partner from 35 years ago said, if you have to worry about paying taxes, you're not making too much money. Uh, I don't worry about those things. All I worry about is cash, cash flow, and more importantly, uh, spendable cash flow or free cash flow. Uh, all the rest is bullshit. Uh, the, um, and I, I've, I've always thought that way, and I've accumulated quite a few assets. Can you give more details on how the instrument works? It's not an instrument. I keep telling you that. But an irrevocable trust is a trust, a legal entity that you put assets in that you're giving up control to trustees. I have no control over the assets within the irrevocable trust. Uh, and so you've got to have self-confidence. You've got to have grit. You've got to have balls on a number of fronts, not the least of which is you pick the right trustees to be in charge of those assets going forward because you've got no way back in. You've got no way to claw them back. Uh, so I, uh, I, for example, I can live at the castle. Uh, I don't live there very often now, but I can live at the castle. Uh, but uh, after I, I, I passed on, uh, the uh, beneficiaries of that are uh, my wife and my children. What is the rule of thumb you have found regarding the requirements of time and money <clears throat> from completing acquisitions? There is no rule of thumb. I recall hearing you say that you should expect it to cost twice as much and take three times as long compared to what you're expecting. That's not about acquisitions. That's about anything. It's going to take you twice as long and it's going to cost you three times as much. When you start a, a startup, when you begin a startup, you think it's going to do ABC. You know, after seven, eight months, it's doing DEF and at the end of a year, it's doing XYZ. Uh, and it always takes longer. Um, because you need to pivot, you need to morph the model until it works. And very few ideas out of the box work. Uh, and why is it going to cost twice as much for the reasons I just alluded to, why it's going to take three times as long to complete? Uh, do you find that the better made assumptions are closer to reality or uh, <clears throat> would the assumptions be wrong no matter what, 
who makes the assessment. The assumptions are going to, well, the outcome is going to be wrong no matter who makes the assumptions because we never know to, with any degree of certainty if the uh, assumptions are correct. <laughs> but even with the best <clears throat> people at making assumptions uh, that have made this based on an assessment of the situation, uh, more experience is better than less experience. And so that's why I can tell you normally if a business model is going to work, if it's not going to work, should you just shit can it? Uh, and if you want to try to fix it, is it fixable? I've been involved in directly and indirectly over 700 transactions, and I've been doing this uh, over 40 years. Uh, this is a question on more advanced uses of the letter of intent <clears throat> as an acquisition tool. Typically speaking, a letter of intent should establish fixed date, estimated closing, dates of turning over uh, diligence documents, dates of sellers and uh, sellers uh, executives, uh, meeting with buyers executives, uh, for buyer obtaining financing, for buyer completing due diligence. Um, but that's a sophisticated LOI. Uh, the LOIs that I instruct my kids, my mentees to get involved with first are much simpler than that. Um, the, uh, to, to agree those points may take four, five, six weeks. Uh, I want an L LOI that you can sign, which we just signed one here in the last uh, five or ten days, that you can agree, I mean, in, in just a few days. Uh, with consequences for such uh, deadlines being unmet, uh, that's, that's, that's another thing, but that's not for the LOI uh, necessarily because you want them to get, you want to get into the deal as quickly as possible so you can know whether it's worth pursuing, it's whether, whether it's worth putting money into uh, in time. My question is, are there other uses for the legal tool that are to the advantage of the buyer when it comes to getting good deals out uh, of the other side? No. The only thing a letter of intent does, and in a, unless it's a letter of intent that's got exclusivity, meaning I sign this LOI and you don't engage in the selling process with anybody else, it has no other real benefit. And most people won't sign those. And LOIs that you have to put money down or um, earnest money, uh, forget. That's bullshit. Uh, is there any uh, need for a public announcement when it comes to smaller acquisitions? If you're a public company, yes. I mean, if you're, uh, if you're listed on a stock exchange, yes. Uh, but it depends on if it's, uh, the rule of materiality. Uh, and uh, the law used to be if it represents 5% of your uh, net assets, it's material, so you have to make an announcement. I'm not sure what the law is today. What is the value or lack thereof of doing a public announcement? Well, <clears throat> it cut from, a, from a public company's point of view, where you're listed on a stock exchange, it covers your butt, so you're telling the shareholders what you're up to. Uh, one of the mistakes I believe Mr. Zuckerberg made, and I believe he's admitted to it, or his advisors admitted to it, I mean, uh, when he bought Instagram for a billion dollars, the board of directors and the investors, which were a lot of the big investors, didn't know about it until they saw it uh, uh, publicly uh, on uh, the news. Um, so uh, it, it shows that you're uh, being uh, transparent, and transparency in the 21st century, as always with transactions, is always the best policy. Uh, J.P. Morgan once said, my attorneys tell me how I can uh, do a deal and why, not why I can't. What personal characteristics make an acquisition lawyer exceptional? What would you sp specifically screen for? 
Attention to detail, track record, track record in your industry, track record in the exact kind of asset that you're purchasing. Uh, that's what I'd look for in an acquisition lawyer. And obviously honesty, loyalty, and all those other things are givens. Uh, when you were at risk of uh, bankruptcy in the past and needed to quickly restructure your liabilities, I've never been at risk of bankruptcy. It's been advised that I go bankrupt a few times prematurely, but I decided to pay everybody. Uh, such as in the case of a debt restructuring negotiations with lenders, what did you do to convince the lenders to give you more money? Well, if you get into the lenders' pockets deep enough, they, uh, they don't want to be in your business. You know, uh, they would rather have somebody experienced to be in your business, and that was you because they, lent, they, they, they structured a deal for you to begin with. So um, the, uh, the easiest policy, and I'm not saying this in a derogatory way, is to get into the lenders for a lot of money, and then they have, they're more inclined to give you more money to get yourself out of it. How did you approach the situation of having to go uh, back for more money over and over again? With my hat in my hand. And uh, one of the things that I've said in the past, uh, not all high-performance people uh, adhere to this, but um, if you can engage in self-deprecation where you can make fun of yourself and poke fun at yourself, you'll be able to raise a lot of money. I tell the story <clears throat> many years ago, uh, Baring Brothers, which was a famous uh, uh, investment bank in London, uh, all over Europe. It had been around three, 400 years. I'm giving a presentation to Lord Baring, as it were, as it was, and a couple of the senior investment officers. I got through the presentation. In those days, we were doing flip cards. It wasn't PowerPoint. And Lord Baring walked me to the uh, lift or the elevator. And as we got to the lift and I stepped, and as we're walking down the hall, I'm saying, uh, Lord Baring, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I look forward to your decision. Um, and uh, he said, uh, as I'm stepping back into the lift and as the lift is closing, he leaned forward when I asked him, and Lord Baring, how could I uh, make my presentation more succinct, more, uh, more enticing, etc." And he leaned into the elevator, the lift, and he says, Mr. Penna, you need to learn how to stutter. Meaning, I was too slick. I, had a, I could answer all the questions. They didn't even finish the question before I had an answer. Okay. Four or five months later, I came back. I'm giving them another presentation. Uh, it was a rights issue when you were going to issue more stock. And they were a big shareholder. I wanted them to take up their rights or take up the stock. So I started the presentation, set up the, um, the flipboard behind me, and I go, Lori Baring, Mr. Gunn. Everybody broke out in laughter. Uh, and uh, the chief investment uh, officer, as I recall, Mr. Gunn, he stood up and said, we're taking up our rights, let's go have lunch. And, uh, but I listened to him, but I poked fun at myself, <clears throat> uh, and uh, that's not the only time that that's happened. I mean, it's happened uh, several times. Uh, and on another podcast, I'll uh, tell the story of how I walked in, literally crawled in on my knees, and uh, with my hat in my hand. In those days, I used to wear a bowler. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I would think that you can simply say, hey, without further capital investments, this endeavor will fail and we won't be able to pay. This is his answer. He asked me a question, now his answer. Uh, and we won't be able to pay back the principal, <clears throat> let alone the interest. But if you help us uh, get, that, that's a politically correct answer. That, that, that may or may not work. It depends on who's your, on your dream team 
who's on your board, etc. Uh, but they know all that. They you don't bullshit them. I mean, they're, they're not as stupid as you'd like to think they are. Uh, I've given you my thoughts on the matter. I discovered a source which I could use to build an email list paying 50 cents per lead, which is cheap, and the open rates are 8%, which is high, and the click rates are, but the click rates are terrible if, uh, if you choose a bad offer. Well, that goes without saying. Everything's the offer, so uh, what's the question? I could get uh, 4,000 leads a day from this, but the list is very generic because they would be coming from a retail website. If I can figure out how to monetize this, uh, I know where my first meeting will come from, but <clears throat> will I will? Uh, but I will need some capital to test this out. This is a big opportunity, but I have no idea what to do with it. Well, it sounds to me that it's not such a big opportunity. I mean, if it's from a retail list and you're not in retail, and if uh, the actual conversions are shit, just because it's cheap doesn't make it good. A lot of guys online think if it's cheap, cheap traffic is good. Well, cheap traffic, kids, is only good if it fucking converts. When you're acquiring a lot of companies, <clears throat> um, do you care about the business development strategy of the acquired pieces, buy and build strategy, or do you uh, just focus on buying as many uh, deals as you can? Well, remember, structure follows strategy. <clears throat> Most acquisitions fail because you're, you're, you're buying companies that have different strategy. So as long as it's got a similar strategy to you, to yours, that's okay. But most times you go in and you have to completely overhaul the strategy. And when you have to completely overhaul the strategy, that makes for uh, bad employee morale, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I was of the theory to get them as close to my strategy as humanly possible and then buy as many companies as you can. What do you, <clears throat> I just said that, okay. Uh, the services of a big accounting firm have expanded greatly over the years. They now include services of preparing strategic business plans, acting as brokers, structuring deals, consulting, management search, advising on information systems, securing partners such as lawyers, etc. Um, when negotiation for these services is, it is advised to ask for as many things as possible so that you are able to give up some things while still getting the key things that you want. Two questions are, one, what are some other services that you would uh, add to the list? And two, uh, and two, what are the services that you see the most valuable to get, which are less? In other words, what are the keys to get and which can uh, you renounce? <clears throat> You're making this all together too complicated. <clears throat> most of these guys aren't going to negotiate those things. But two things you've got to understand. The big accounting firms now if they do your audit work, they're not going to do your uh, corporate finance work, due diligence work. If they do your taxes, they're not going to do your corporate finance work. Um, so you made this, uh, like in most things, guys make it more difficult than it needs to be. You just want them to act for you on a success fee basis. How do you determine the market value of shares of startups, which by definition have no market value assigned? In the case of a startup or a private held company, such as an acquisition target, there is a lack of values assigned by the market to their shares. How do you value the shares of such a company? For example, how do you figure out how many shares to give in your startup uh, for how many shares privately held company, the acquisition target, assuming both are the same industry? 
Again, you're making it way too uh, difficult, okay. You've got a startup company that, let's say you started for $1,000 or 1,000 pounds or 1,000 euros, okay. You, uh, it may be 10 cents a share. So whatever that equates to in shares. Unless the acquisition candidate agrees to you buying them over time where um, they're going to take some of your shares, the value of your company is, it doesn't make any difference. If they're going to do a share swap, then it makes a difference what your company is uh, valued at. But in, in the initial stage, it's going to be valued at fuck all, bubka, zero, nothing. So this question doesn't mean anything. Uh, it doesn't also mean anything if they're in the same industry, different industries, or one's on Mars and one's on Venus. Uh, this is, you know, I put this question in here because you kids confuse yourselves. You, you, you get um, uh, inundated or bogged down with minutia. And minutia only it makes manure, and manure is only shit. Um, I mean, I can tell you right now, I didn't think of any of this stuff when I was uh, doing my first deals. Um, the, um, you want to find a deal, your lawyers will show you how to structure it. But if this is another way of saying you don't want you to pay your lawyers or, and or you haven't been able to convince a, a law firm and or accounting firm to do it on a successful basis, then, I mean, um, it's, it's a, not a recipe for an absolute 100% failure, but that's what the dream team's all about. So you don't have to learn how to do this. I was just uh, reading the Wall Street Journal and came across an article with the headline, Kellogg roiled by weak cereal sales. This is, this is an interesting uh, comment. Basically, uh, he goes on to say, basically consumers are eating less cereal so their sales are hurting. However, um, as the article states, the good news is that more people are eating breakfast. The bad news is that there are more alternatives. Consumers are turning away from high-carb foods. I know that myself. Uh, in favor of high-protein uh, foods like Greek yogurt. This, this kid's Greek, coincidentally. So doesn't it make sense for them to give a consumer what they want and create and acquire a subsidiary to sell uh, yogurt and expand their uh, market share? It seems like the obvious, but uh, am I missing something here? Interested to hear my comments. Okay. Well, it's pretty simple. The reason is that they've got a kajillion dollars in plant and equipment that makes the cereals. That hasn't some, uh, and most of which probably hasn't been fully depreciated. Uh, that's number one. Number two, their whole infrastructure, marketing infrastructure is based on, not whole, but a good portion of their uh, marketing infrastructure is based on selling carbohydrates and cereals. They don't call it that, but that's what it is. So it's not just so simple for them to drop all that, kill all that, and buy a yogurt factory. Uh, their uh, advertising campaigns, uh, which some are, are one, two, three, four, five-year campaigns, They've, they've got uh, advertising agencies that they have on retainers, long-term retainers. It's just not that easy. Um, and uh, so just because they know that people are e eating less carbohydrate, the same question can be asked about Weber Bread or any of the bread companies. They know people are, are eating less bread. So now they're making fat-free bread or less calorie bread or um, gluten-free bread, etc. But there's, there's, there's always um, different points of view on all these questions that seem so obvious. 
I fucked up my life a few years ago and got stuck in the living on benefits trap for about seven years. I'm not sure what that means, unless he means on uh, the dole or on uh, some government agency that pays you for not working. That's passed, and I'm now bootstrapping myself to grow a business that provides long-term wealth for my family and employ, which employs people, some of whom were on benefits to get them all out of the same trap. It has a gross profit margin of about 60%. That's great. And more like 75 to 80% if handled correctly. That's terrific. Uh, I like those kinds of business. And my question is this. What do you think we need to ignite in the mind of benefit claimers to get them to kick ass and get out of the same trap um, I too was in? Well, I'm proud of you that after seven years you were able to get out of it. Uh, some people make it a lifetime uh, endeavor, and some people teach their kids to be, make that a lifetime, and sometimes you have three or four or five generations. Or that's an exaggeration. One, two, three generations uh, on the uh, benefits kick. To get them off, uh, you need to show them by example how you did it. Uh, and uh, I believe you need to get in their face about it to show them how you did it. Uh, and you need to uh, make part of your work plan or your business plan, not written business plan, but your actual uh, business plan, how you run the business, to help them get off. And uh, like Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, AA, so one, uh, one step at a time, one day at a time, I should say. I've heard you say you'd prefer to work with a truck driver or a builder who's not afraid of hard work and willing to call a spade a spade, Actually, I say I call it a spade, a shovel, but anyway, rather than someone who is e too educated. And surely that's exactly the type of people who are stuck in the system. Uh, belief in themselves, belief in themselves, some cash and the willingness to kick ass and they'd be on their way. Well, all know, we all know just how effective the military are by taking people off the street and making them so much more. So would you be interested in mentoring me to do the same for people who uh, let their passion burn low. I believe, and I believe in a podcast or so ago, I said that I believe in mandatory service. Uh, it took in a boy, immature boy of 20, and it, it spit out uh, a man uh, three or four years later. And by the time I got them my reserve commitment, it was seven years later. Um, but that's not politically correct, and it's not likely that uh, any of the big countries are going to have military service in any other form other than by voluntary. Um, but um, what you need to do is uh, show how you've benefited uh, to others. Uh, the clearest example I have to, from people in the ghetto and the barrio is my success story. You know, from barrio boy to uh, Laird of Guthrie Castle is a pretty uh, spectacular run. And I've been very fortunate, but I've worked my ass off for, for 40 years. Uh, and I've worked my ass off the last 20 years when I didn't have to work my ass off. And I've devoted the QLA methodology to people like those reading the, uh, listening to this podcast and watching this podcast that uh, it can be done. But some people, I can't get in the hole with you. If I get in your hole, then I can't pull you out of it. I've got you, the same is for you, uh, you know, the same analogy uh, holds true for you. You need to, these people need to get out of their situation enough to pull themselves out. Once they've pulled themselves out, then you can help them. 
What I'm doing is a repeatable. Hell, I'm aiming to uh, end up making more profit in the future by selling uh, off local franchises. And I know that this model is exactly what someone on benefits, uh, another benefits guy, could start up and run with providing. <clears throat> they can be kept away from the naysayers and well-meaning friends. Um, it's not them. Uh, if not them, there's others that would be able to take up the challenge and make a success of this. Well, uh, the only way that uh, that these uh, people can stay away from the naysayers is if if you keep them away. Remember, you show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Uh, and most of these people, their friends are lackluster at best. Absolute. Uh, uh, piss poor examples uh, at worst. Um, but when you make yourself a big success, then you can look back at them and show them how you were made a success, just as the analogy I made a few minutes ago about myself. Until you do that, um, I, uh, you're going to have a very, very difficult time. You asked for a big question. Would beating the government and all the overpaid, well-meaning job advisor consultants by showing that the old school tough love way is best uh, qualify as a big enough one for you? Well, I believe in it. Tough love. My dad invented it in the early 50s when he was raising me before anybody ever wrote about it. I think the first person that ever mentioned tough love was in the 70s. So my dad was roughly 20 years ahead of the time. And by the 70s, I was already a mature adult and uh, making uh, quite a bit of money and getting a lot of awards. Um, but I, I realize now after coaching 21 years, uh, and that the primary reason that I've, fo I've, I've laser beam focused, even my teaching, my coaching, my mentoring to a few, not the many, because I want to have maximum results. Uh, and if I have maximum results on a million people, those million people can touch 10 or 20 million people. If I have minimum results on 10 million people, that's exactly what results are going to pass on. So um, while I believe in the old school tough love, um, I'm not willing to change my model and, change and try to change the government. I'll be 70 years old my next birthday. Uh, I'll leave that for somebody else. Uh, but uh, you're talking about a 100-year program, or maybe a 200-year program. Uh, and um, I'm, I wouldn't be willing to get involved in that. Hi, Dan. Question. When I look at the older videos, you appear in your... You appear in your speeches as charismatic and kind of friendly, <laughs> yet dominant. That's pretty funny. Uh, in your classes and probably in your meetings, you are more aggressive. Is that speech giving, all play acting, uh, and how did you develop social skills while working all the time? No, it's not play acting. If you come to the seminar uh, and you watch my YouTube, uh, YouTube's on, uh, on the uh, internet. That's just how I am. Um, I use uh, four-letter words because uh, they work. Uh, I'm aggressive. I'm pushy. I'm obstinate. I'm focused. And I demand that you be the same. Uh, uh, but I have had no problem developing social skills while working uh, all the time. It, I, I think that's an oxymoron. They have nothing to do with one another. Uh, my, my parents taught me good social skills, and that's what, unfortunately, we see a lot of now. Kids aren't taught the skills. They don't know which fork to use, which hand to put the fork and the knife in. You know, 
They, they don't know that the butter knife stays on the butter plate. They don't know that you use the butter knife from the big butter plate in the table to take butter off and put it on your butter plate, then you use your butter knife. I mean, nobody knows this. Most kids don't know that you start on the outside and work in with silverware and work from the top, that has silver setting above, from the top down. Most people don't know what glass to use. My, my, my parents taught me all that, and we were poor. So, um, the, uh, but I had no problem uh, developing social skills. I already had them. Plus, when I went into the military and I became an officer, an officer and a gentleman by the Act of Congress, that meant something to me. Dan, you mentioned, and I completely agree, well, thank you, uh, that the, uh, the change only comes through desperation or inspiration. Desperation, we all know, but as uh, I can see it, to be truly successful and high on life, one needs to be inspired, and the only thing that has stayed with me over the years so far has been uh, a childhood dream. Well, at least you've got a dream. That seems a bit more probable now than it did then, but still ranks fairly high on the hard-to-accomplish scale, okay? I've been and am frequently enthusiastic about some things, I dare say inspired, but th these I see as add-ons to the goal. Uh, they wax, uh, they wane, I can work hard at one for a while, but not for long. Well, you lack focus, you lack passion, and this, these really aren't important to you. Sorry for the lengthy uh, prequel, but my question is this. Would you advise a man to pursue an uncertain, maybe impossible, but heart-driven dream, a dream that requires self-actualization constantly, or to try and find himself inspired by more easily accomplished ventures uh, on the road to success, especially since hard to accomplish things may also be hard to monetize until they're accomplished. No, <clears throat> I wouldn't. Uh, there's never uh, an easy time to make a hard decision. Uh, uh, most people make uh, decisions, uh, make short-term solutions uh, to long-term problems. Uh, you've already stated that you, uh, you wax and wane and you can get motivated and you can get driven. But if you were really passionate and you were really driven, you could stay in that state. I stay in that state. Uh, I've been high on life, and I don't have to take drugs. Uh, and uh, some of the current ones, DMT, uh, amongst other things. I don't need any of that. I never have. Uh, I'm sure I never will. Um, but it has nothing to do whether you can monetize it now. If you're passionate about it and you stay with it, you'll make money. What is the single most important piece of advice you would give to a young adult that wants to start a business? I, I, I get asked this. I keep putting it up because you kids keep asking me. Just fucking do it. Don't do so much research. Don't do so many spreadsheets. Just fucking do it. And then you'll morph and pivot as time goes on. <clears throat> I've managed to save $60,000 over the last two years and need $40,000 more to buy a GNC franchise business. I believe that's vitamins in which thereafter I want to attend your seminar in Scotland. My question would be, how can I raise the 40,000 very fast? Well, how did you save the 60,000? Okay, get somebody that believes in you. I've had people sell 10% of their future earnings for the next three or four or five years. I've had people do all kinds of uh, weird things to be able to come to the castle. Because the one thing I can assure you, and I'm not telling you to go deeply in debt or sacrifice your family or anything like that, just to come to Guthrie Castle. But I will tell you this, we have a 100% track record for changing lives, 
And people that come to me don't always come to me with the same uh, level of commitment as they leave. So um, if, you, if there's a will, there'll be a way and you'll find, figure out how to get to Kathy. <clears throat> what questions should you listeners be asking that, but aren't? Well, the questions uh, are uh, somewhat different than the questions I in, uh, thought that I would be getting from you kids uh, on the $50 billion man podcast. They really are. <clears throat> you kids are way too esoteric. Uh, you're, you're thinking about, instead of, uh, uh, you know, when you ride a bicycle, do you look at your pedals and your feet or do you look out on the horizon? When you sail a boat, do you look at the water going underneath the keel? Or do you look on the horizon? You kids are looking at the, um, the minutiae, uh, and you're not looking at the overall goal. Uh, I believe the ends justify the means as long as it's moral, ethical, legal. Uh, and uh, I, I was willing to make any sacrifice uh, if it fell within those parameters. Just by the, the, the tone of many of the questions you guys asked me, you're not willing to make those commitments. Better off that you find out now it's not for you than five years from now. But the one thing I, I can assure you is that people that read books normally read books because they can't take action. They're looking for one more reason to make it a perfect scenario, and you're never going to find that. Um, I live in Vancouver. I'm looking to buy my first home, and I want to use my money to invest in houses. Uh, there is a lot of speculation about the housing market in Canada. Yes, there are. I have mentees there, and especially in Vancouver, I have mentees there, where the prices are very inflated due to artificially low interest rates and other factors. Well, one of the factors that the uh, real estate prices have gone up so high in recent years is there's a lot of people from China uh, investing their money, not just moving there, but just investing their money there. Uh, would you recommend buying in a market that could potentially be a bubble? And if so, do you have any uh, advice uh, to people uh, to uh, advice to help me avoid getting screwed? You never know when the bubble is going to burst, or I mean, it may last 20 more years. Uh, one way would be to invest in real estate over the next three to five years, so you get a blended rate. So if it does go down, at least you're getting a blended rate. Um, the um, I'm not a investor in real estate, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm not uh, the best guy to ask. Uh, but as far as uh, not getting screwed, uh, the best way is to get uh, a good real estate attorney to handle that transaction and deal with an honest broker. Uh, and uh, those are the best ways. Uh, what do you mean exactly by a fragmented industries in chaos? How do you find them? <laughs> Uh, it sounds like you haven't done much homework, okay? Fragmented Industries, uh, General Motors was a conglomeration of fragmented industries. IBM was. I mean, even, my, uh, even uh, Facebook is, with, now they're, they're picking up the smaller fragments of their industry. Um, the, uh, and chaos is when the prices are going up quickly or they've dropped through the bottom. Uh, the, uh, the housing market uh, up till two, uh, the last couple of years because of the interest rate debacle uh, in the 2008, 2009, and 10 financial crisis. Uh, you know, anything that had to do with interest rates, banks, and real estate was in chaos. 
uh, if there were no birds, nor flying insects or lizards for inspiration, do you think mankind would have developed flight? Probably not. Uh, they modeled, uh, the, the Wright brothers modeled, uh, I believe, birds, uh, flight, um, and, um, and so uh, I don't think there would be planes. There'd be some other form of movement, but not airplanes. If there's someone you are leaving behind that knows your, is there someone that you're leaving behind that knows your secrets and your ways of teaching uh, these materials to others once you leave the planet? No. When I go to either the big man in the sky or the big man down under, uh, I will uh, leave a legacy of hopefully, you know, tens of millions of people that have followed QLA and fulfilled their dreams. Uh, I will leave uh, materials ad nauseum uh, free on the internet. Uh, it's not likely I'm going to produce any more product. And people ask me, why don't, why don't you change, change your cap, uh, raising capital tapes or deals and acquisition tapes that you did in the late 90s? I don't, I don't change them, kids, because what I said in the late 90s worked, in the 2000, worked then, it worked in the 2000s, it worked in the 2014. Uh, uh, Nothing's changed. Uh, so uh, when I leave, um, the, uh, although I, there's a, maybe 10 or 15 mini-me's running around the world, um, that are doing some derivative uh, of uh, QLA, um, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not leaving the, the, the keys to the kingdom to anybody. So, which, you know, I'm not using this as a sales pitch, but if you want to get, you know, hear it from the horse's mouth, you know, either write a check, well, we don't take checks, but uh, send that wire or uh, get on a payment plan and come and see me at Guthrie Castle. You worked hard and did action instead of waiting, as Napoleon Hill wrote. In the end, you lived uh, in, in the you, he, Napoleon wrote, okay. In the end, you live in a dream castle. Yes, I do. Dreaming precede, uh, achievement, precedes achievement and success embraces them. Correct. You're spot on so far. You think you could push a born writer to finish this book I'm writing and sell the millions. I know I can finish, but what it takes to make it a bestseller, that's what a writer needs. I don't know how to do that. Uh, uh, my first hundred million, although it was well received, is basically only the people that were QLA de devotees, uh, that, uh, many of which became QLA uh, mentees, uh, read it. It wasn't wide, widely distributed, although we have, a, I think it's called a bin number. Um, but uh, I printed it, uh, the first, the, uh, Building Your Own Guthrie, and then the first and second edition of your first hundred million uh, for my, uh, the people that are interested, which is a very small portion of the market. And I also just recently, in the last few months, issued a Romanian copy, uh, translated copy of your first hundred million, and I give it away free on my website. Uh, because I have, I'm, I'm thankful for all the QLA devotees and mentees that I have in Romania, and especially for Father George, who's a priest, a mentee of mine, who's been to the Castle Seminar twice, and he, he and his lovely wife, Christina, um, he's a Greek Orthodox priest, so you can have wives and kids, uh, were responsible uh, for the translation, uh, and I'm very thankful to them for that. 
but I have no magic tool. Um, the, uh, I would suggest uh, that you, the same thing. You build a dream team, you get a mentor that understands writing. And now that I have an agent, which I didn't used to have an agent before, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, uh, I smile when I say this because they call me a talent, which I find uh, somewhat uh, amusing. I've always had talent, but I've never been called a talent because that's what you call, uh, agents call their uh, clients. Uh, get an agent uh, that believes in your project uh, and helps you. Um, and uh, that's my advice. And that's only in the last, you know, several weeks do I understand that process. Uh, you know, they're talking about a documentary for me. They're talking about uh, um, a uh, re-release of my book. Uh, and uh, now I'm, I'm talking to two of the biggest production companies in the UK. Uh, about uh, the reality show and of course I have one of the, the largest and best talent agencies in the world to represent me and this all came um, from uh, an idea uh, from uh, one of my mentees you know so uh, but I've taken the difference is where you guys with spreadsheet at the fucking death I took action ie part of that action are these podcasts dear Dan Given your experience as an oil man, I'm not an oil man, kid. Uh, where do you see the future of energy sector going in the next hundred years? <laughs> I don't have a fucking clue. But I will tell you this. There are rumors in the oil industry, and I don't know if they're true. As my old good friend, world-class finance man, uh, John Ernest used to tell me, he was my CFO. There, um, there are no secrets, Dan. There's only mysteries. He said that there's since the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there's been rumors that people have come up with ways to uh, produce um, uh, liquid in a petroleum form. I, I don't know if that's true, that, which would mean the need for fossil fuel is no longer. I do know that there's a, a myth, maybe, or a rumor that back in the 60s, there was going to be a giant conference in, in Las Vegas for the uh, petroleum industry, and a guy was going to come and present his papers, uh, and he never showed up, uh, and he disappeared in the desert, and he supposedly found a thing to make distilled water into uh, some sort of petroleum product that could run cars. I don't know if that's true. Um, I do know, uh, for example, they've had battery cars for over 100 years, 110 years, and you'd think that the battery car would be more sophisticated and more advanced. It's not. Uh, Tesla, uh, I believe it's Tesla cars, uh, and uh, the young kid that's behind it, along with the, the uh, rocket company and the energy company, I believe, uh, is, is pushing that envelope. But the big energy companies aren't. Uh, are we going to run out of uh, fossil fuel? I don't know. Just in the last few years, shale oil has become prominent. They've had that shale there for since I was in the business. So I can't, I can't answer that question. Uh, but uh, I am personally involved in uh, an alternative energy project. Do you think we w should exhaust, the, oh, this is part of the, the same question, another question. Do you think we should exhaust the remaining fossil fuels left on Earth, or is it time to begin heavily developing and investing in new methods of gen generating electricity? I think I answered that. Um, Dan, if I met you in the lift in the top hotel and I knew you were who you were, well, if you don't know what I look like, then you're blind if you've been on my side. And I didn't want to waste your time. I shake your hand and I say, Dan, if I want to be a millionaire, can you give me a quick tip to put me in the right track? Um, 
the doors are opening and you say, just fucking do it. Whatever, follow your heart, follow your passion, just fucking do it. You'll make a lot of mistakes, but you'll, you won't get tired doing something that you're passionate about. Um, in conjunction with that, what is the, the one thing that would make the biggest difference for most people in their success journey? Again, you don't want to hear it, kids. It's just do it. You don't have the self-confidence. You don't have the self-determination. You don't have the grit. You, don't, you call it whatever the fuck you want to call it. But that's what differentiates the, the high-performance people that I talk about all the time in the seminar and I talk about when I, when I give speeches, which isn't too often anymore. Uh, what life balance choice did you and your uh, wife make in order to raise kids? We didn't make any life balance challenge. We did not make any work-life balance. I've told you about work-life balance. Now, there's only work-life consequences. Uh, and you live with them or you don't live with them. Um, I take it that your wife is a member of your dream team. You take it wrong. I saw that she is a chartered accountant. That is correct. And she specializes in mergers and acquisitions. Uh, that's not quite correct. That's one of her specialities, but her real speciality is tax. How does this being ambitious affect one's spirituality? And does a lack of ambition and passion in life possibly hint at a spiritual problem? No. I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't buy off on the fact that spirituality has much to do with being a high-performance person, i.e. Steve Jobs, only until he almost uh, was gone from the planet did he believe in anything other than himself. Um, but uh, a lack of ambition and passion will certainly uh, affect your uh, being a high-performance person. But um, I've, I've seen p highly spiritual people that have been high-performers. I've seen high... high Highly spiritual people that have been uh, not high performers. Do you think it is worth seeking venture capital <clears throat> even if you don't need it? Or is it better to continue to grow your company yourself? Well, if you're having to give up a big chunk of your company for the venture capital, which I assure you would, then uh, if you don't need it, then fine, grow inter internally. But I tell the kids all the time, I would rather have 40% of a billion dollar company than 100% of a $10 million company. Full stop, end. So you make the choice. Uh, what could stop me from fulfilling my dream, which is being an independent trader? Well, if you're not an independent trader now, uh, uh, and your dream is to be an independent trader, and you're not taking action to be an independent trader, then the only thing that can stop you from fulfilling your dream is you. The problem is here, and it is you. Um, and for whatever reason you're not doing it, uh, it's you. Nobody's got a gun to your head. I've been fortunate enough to spend time in the circles of the truly wealthy. Been gifted one first-class trips, been gifted first-class trips, enjoyed holidays on a 200-foot mega yacht in the south of France, given keys to superstars. Uh, I've been uh, coached, I've coached, I've even coached some of them to greater personal happiness and assisted in billions Billion-dollar negotiations in the shipping industry. However, I have never gone beyond a million a year personally. I want to. The actual lifestyle of the rich is okay, but I prefer mine. Uh, the trimmings don't motivate me. Then if the trimmings don't motivate you, uh, kid, then it's not likely that you're going to go beyond a million. Uh, what motivates me is uh, that if someone else can do it, I can. I, I want to prove my intelligence, ability, and relentless pursuit of being all I can be. That's a good thing. 
I want to move into a $10 million a year uh, bracket. Okay, so the question is, how do I find a business vehicle or vehicles that take you to this level and get up to speed to be um, able to make it happen? My vehicles make a million. I was given the opportunity to get into shipping, but would have been a, uh, his bitch and given salary for 10 years as I learned the ropes. That's not for you. But you didn't have to stay 10 years. You could have stayed two or three years and learned the business. Shipping is a, a business, having been with the Onassis Group, with Mr. Grazos, you can make a lot, a lot of money. Uh, but I, it seems to me that you're looking at life the, as the glass is half empty as opposed to half full. To me, you sound a bit insecure. To me, you sound like you lack the self-confidence to go out and do something else. To me, you like, even though you say you don't, it sounds like you like living vicariously um, off of other people's wealth. Would you pay off my child support if I won? This is the contest, I assume you're talking about. It's the only way I could get a passport. What's your... I guess that you can't leave the country, they've taken your passport. No, I, I don't get involved in child support disputes. What's my take on 9-11? Um, I really have no opinion. I, I'm not a believer of the conspiracy theory, though. Uh, met with Mexican Film Commission in Mexico regarding consulting gig. Uh, the, um, this is a long, long question about whether to do a consulting gig for the uh, government. This isn't how I suggested you get involved with the government. I suggested you get involved with the government where they pay you up front, not where you uh, are on uh, the come or uh, based on success fees. You don't want to be on success fees. You want them to be on success fees. If, I get a lot of questions like this again. If you could uh, tell your 25-year-old self one piece of advice, how many times? Let me hear it from you. Just fucking do it. Um, what do you want to be remembered for? If one, day the, 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 if one day the day comes and you will pass away, hopefully a long time from now. <laughs> well, the day will come. The one thing that we're guaranteed uh, is uh, we're not going to live forever. Um, I'm in great shape for 70, almost 70. Uh, and um, I don't look like I'm almost 70. And I certainly don't feel like it. I was, uh, when I was getting ready to do these shootings for these podcasts today, I was thinking to myself, uh, I don't feel any different than I did when I was 40 or 45. Uh, but the one thing I want to be known for is uh, my le legacy that will live on after I'm gone is that uh, I helped more people across the goal line and fulfilling their dreams uh, than anybody else um, since time began. I've certainly created more wealth than anybody else since time began directly uh, in um, equity and uh, uh, value, but I want to be known for that. So 50 years from now, just like Napoleon Hill is known for what he did, 50 years from now, uh, the, the name Dan Pena will be known as creating wealth through QLA, Quantum Leap Advantage. Why after 61 years of life and the last 25 unhappily in the employ of others, uh, in the security alarm industry, do I fear being my own boss and going uh, out on my own? I hate to tell you this, uh, Mr. or Ms., because you lack the balls. You lack the self-confidence, uh, even though you've got a lot of experience. Um, you know, you haven't just gotten unhappy in the last 25 years. You've been unhappy a long, long time, uh, yet you're still there. 
uh, and you're afraid of taking the risk, the chance to go out and be your own boss and be on your own. Um, the, uh, I've worked with people a lot older than you, uh, and it can be done, but if you don't have the passion for it, stay where you are. I'm a 20-year-old student with a goddamn fire in my belly. I read your book twice, and I'm going to do this. Uh, what do you recommend? The fastest learning process. I don't study uh, business uh, yet, so what would uh, I do? Uh, work in the city first. This is from UK. Get a job in the city, find a mentor. Get a job in the city, find a mentor. And the rest will take care of itself. For my 10th uh, uh, podcast, uh, we've uh, gone over a lot of questions. Some of you guys might think that uh, some of the questions are repetitious. I put some of the questions in, even though I've answered in one form or another, maybe a few times uh, since I started my first podcast. But you keep asking the same questions, so it's because you have a need for more information. Uh, and so that's why I, I keep on answering them, try to answer them in different ways. But as far as what would you do if you're the 20 or 25-year-old guy, yada, yada, just fucking do it. Uh, is, is money difficult to get? Uh, uh, no. Um, the, um, and I, I, I'm going to do in the future a podcast on uh, just, uh, you know, how do you get the money? Uh, or I think it's called how do you get the fucking money? Uh, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, depending on when this airs, um, the, um, doing other people's podcasts. Uh, and I'm very much interested in your continued comments. I still get uh, great comments for Brian Rose's uh, London Reel. I will keep you apprised of how my endeavors are for my reality show and the very offshoots of that. So far, uh, things are progressing uh, nicely. I'd like them to be progressing more quickly, but uh, nothing really ever goes as quickly as I want it to go. Uh, until the next time, uh, God bless and peace. This is AskThe50BillionDollarMan.com's official disclaimer. Comments, questions, and remarks made during any part of this podcast are intended to generate discussion and reflection, but are not legal, accounting, tax, investment, appraisal, medical, or other professional advice or instructions, or factual reporting all of which are expressly disclaimed. Remember, investigate before you invest. We can't do that for you. You are solely responsible for your investigation, analysis, and decisions made with your independent professional advisors, familiar with your specific and verified facts, and current applicable laws and regulations. Reliance on this podcast, its contents, or its participants for any personal or business decision, including but not limited to legal, investment, or other financial decisions, is disclaimed. No comment, question, or remark or other content shall be or be construed as an express or implied promise, undertaking contract or agreement, or a waiver of any part of this disclaimer or applicable laws. The owners and distributors disclaim any obligation to supplement, correct, or modify the content of any podcast. No content shall be deemed to encourage evasion or disobedience of any law or the submission to jurisdiction in any country. Reliance upon any facts assumed to be true for the podcast is disclaimed. Persons or entities referred to are fictional, and no depiction or reference to any person or entity is intended. Any seeming resemblance to an actual person or entity is entirely coincidental.
All content is copyrighted and may not be used without written permission from Dan S. Pena, Sr.